that you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I love to help us understand every word of God that's in the word of God. That's why I teach and my objective is always the same. It's disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches. So in this way, we can see Jesus be a grassroots, beautiful movement all over the world. Now in 2021, our vision is to multiply from four churches in two countries to eight churches in four countries. This is a very big vision, so we need you to pray uh, with us about how God might be using you to accomplish his will and his purpose through ocean water. Now we have, we have four trips this year. We have two trips uh, to El Salvador in June. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have a trip to Indonesia in September, and we have a trip to Bangladesh in December. We'd love for you to go on one of our trips where we install a system that turns the ocean water behind me into fresh, clean drinking water for the coast that needs it. So again, be praying about this. We'd love to have you participate in what God's doing in and through ocean water. Today we're in Matthew chapter 25. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out, went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in that day. Now, the first was engagement, a formal agreement made by the fathers. Now, the second was the betrothal, a ceremony where mutual promises were made. And the third was marriage, approximately one year later when the bridegroom came at an unexpected time for his bride. A little different than the way we do it today. Now, some asked why Jesus described ten virgins and not another number. So, reportedly, the ten lamps were in a bridal procession. It was a common size of a wedding party. Now, in this parable, the first two stages had already taken place. Now, the wedding, the party of the ten virgins, waits for the coming of the bridegroom for the bride. So, Jesus is making an analogy of, of the church here. Now, in verse 2, it says, Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. There were the foolish ones who took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming to go out to meet him. And then all the virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, uh, because then there won't be enough for both you and us, but go rather to those who sell, buy some for yourself. Makes sense? And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with them to the wedding, and then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Well, surely I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So let me unpack this for you. So now some in the wedding party were wise and they prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Some in the wedding party were foolish and they were unprepared, just like us in our relationship with Jesus. Now, all 10 of the maidens slept because the bridegroom was delayed. Now in this parable, both the wise and the foolish maidens slept, but the wise ones were prepared to act immediately when they were unexpectedly awakened. Now the foolish maidens, they weren't prepared. Uh, they took their lamps and took no oil with them. You see the five foolish virgins appeared to be appeared to be ready for the bridegroom because they had their lamps in their hand, but they weren't really ready because they took no oil with them. They were sort of faking it. Now, at an unexpected hour, the bridegroom came for the wedding. Now the wedding party, all those virgins, immediately began to prepare their lamps for lighting. Now. 
This was a warning address specifically to those inside those who profess to be in the church. Now, all ten are expected to be at the feast, and until the moment comes, there's no apparent difference between them. It is a crisis in which they divide the ready from the unready. So this is about being prepared for Jesus coming back. Now, the foolish virgins were unprepared because they didn't have oil in their lamps. And in the many biblical passages about oil, it's an emblem of the Holy Spirit. Without oil, the wedding party was not ready for the bridegroom. Without the Holy Spirit, no one is ready for the return of Jesus. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to be working in us and through us. Now, olive oil is a good representation of the Holy Spirit for a lot of reasons. One, oil lubricates when it's used for that purpose. There's a little bit of friction and wear among those who are lubricated, so to speak, by the Spirit of God. Oil heals and was used as a medicinal treatment in biblical times in Luke 10. The Spirit of God brings healing and restoration. Oil lights when it is burned in a lamp. Where the Spirit of God is, there is light. Also, oil warms when it is used as fuel for a flame. Where the Spirit of God is, there is warmth and comfort. Also, oil invigorates when used to massage. The Holy Spirit invigorates us for his service. So Jesus is trying to understand some parallels here. Oil adorns when applied as a perfume. The Holy Spirit adorns us and makes us more pleasant to be around. Isn't that wonderful? Oil polishes when used to shine metal. The Holy Spirit wipes away our grime and smooths out our rough edges. I know I need that a lot in my own life. Now, no one can be a true Christian without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As it says in Romans 8, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In this parable, Jesus probably did not intend a separation between the Spirit-filled and the non-Spirit-filled followers. The distinction is likely between true followers of Jesus and false followers of Jesus. Nevertheless, a key to being ready is to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 tells us this. Now, much of the weakness, defeat, and lethargy that we experience spiritually is because we're not constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it says here that the door was shut. He said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. The penalty was severe for the foolish maidens. They were not allowed to come to the wedding, and the door was shut against them in the strongest terms possible. The point of this parable is simple. Be ready. The price for failing to be ready is much too high. Now, look at verse 14. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to the other two, and the other one. Now, to each one according to his ability, <clears throat> and immediately he went on a journey. See, this was not a strange idea in the ancient world where servants or slaves were often given great responsibility. This was often the safest and smartest thing that a man could do with his money. The best thing that he could do with his money in his absence was dividing it among carefully selected people and leaving them to do what was best with it. It was like a form of trust that they had established. So the talent was not an ability, although this parable has application to our abilities, but in this parable, it was a unit of money worth, worth roughly about $2,000 or perhaps even more due to the cost of inflation. But the English use of talent for a supernatural aptitude derives from this parable. But of course, the Greek, Greek talent 
is simply a sum of money. It was generally regarded as about 6,000 denarii. Now, if a talent were worth 6,000 denarii, then it would take a day laborer about 20 years or so to earn this much. So this was a lot of money. In the application of this parable, it's appropriate to see these talents as life resources, such as time, money, abilities, and influence. Now, the servants were given different amounts of this. According to their ability, only the servant received one talent, yet should not see that as an insignificant amount. Some received more, but everyone received something, and everyone received a large amount. So we're to steward what God gives to us. Now look at verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more, but he had also received one and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now each of those who had received their talents from their master did with them as they saw fit. Now two of them traded with their talents and earned more talents, made another five talents. They gained two more also. So this is about stewardship. Now D.A. Carson writes that it implied direct action. The point is that the good servants felt the responsibility of their assignment and went to work without delay. Now, we aren't told how they traded with their talents. Perhaps they loaned it and got interest on it. Perhaps they used the money and bought things and sold them for more money. The point is that they used what they had and gained more by stewarding it well. Now, we can say many good things about the work of the first two servants. They did their work promptly. Um, they did their work with perseverance. They did their work with success. They were ready to give an account to their master based on the resources that they had been given. Now, the third servant did almost nothing with his master's money. He took some care that it would not be lost by hiding it, but he did nothing positive with his master's money because his master wanted a return, just like God wants us to invest our lives in contrast to the first two servants. Now, look at verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts so he had received five talents, came and brought five more, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. The Lord said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and now I will make you the ruler over many things. Now enter into your joy of your Lord. Now he also received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, catch this, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter in to the joy that I have for you. Now, the long delay would tempt the servants to think that they would never give an account for their management, yet they most certainly did, just like you and I. The reward was the same for both servants, even though one was given five and the other was given two, each performed the same according to their resources. They invested it. Now this shows that the master looks for goodness and faithfulness in his servants. Now whatever financial success these servants enjoyed came because they were good and faithful, the master looked first for character qualities, not for a specific amount of money. The character qualities were being good and faithful. Now, this is the echo. This has an echo of heaven in it. The idea is that there is a place of joy belonging to the master of these servants, and they were are invited to join the master in that place. There's a sense of heaven about the destiny for these two 
faithful servants. Now, what can we say about the reward of the first two servants? Well, we can say a few things. They received praise from their master. They received a promise of future blessing, and they received glory, the joy of the Lord. Now, look at verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had sown, reaping where you've not sown, and gathering where you've not scattered seed. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here is what I have for you. The one thing you originally gave me. Now the master judged each of the individual, the servants individually. If they were taken as a group, they did very well. They were eight talents given and 15 talents returned. Yet each was judged individually based on what they had been given, just like you and I. Now the servant who merely buried his talent tried to excuse himself because of his master's great power. In fact, he believed that his master to be in some sense omnipotent, reaping where he had not sown and gathering where he had not scattered seeds. So he knew this about what he had originally been given. The third servant seemed proud of himself because the master was so powerful and in the mind of the servant didn't need help. The third servant thought that the master would be pleased that he did nothing and at least protected what he had originally been given. He said, look, there you have what is yours. He seemed to have no idea how much he had displeased his masters. Now we can say that in the third servant's favor that at least he still understood that what he had been given belonged to his master. He said, you have what is yours. Now, a lot of people who follow God think that when God gives them something, it no longer belongs to God, it belongs to them, and then they can do with it whatever they want. Well, that's not the case. We're stewards of everything that God gives us in our life. We can say of the work of the third servant about a few things. Well, one, he didn't really think. <laughs> Two, he didn't really work. And three, he didn't really try. And then lastly, he made excuses about all of it. Now look at verse 26, but said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have at least received back my own talent with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is pretty heavy. Now what's going on here? Well, the condemnation of this third servant here called a wicked and lazy servant was strong. The sovereignty of the master never excused the laziness of the servant. It condemned that laziness. It condemned his laziness. Those who don't work for the Lord or pray or reach out to people because God is sovereign condemn themselves by their laziness. By their actions or lack of action, they show that they are like the wicked servant in this parable. They don't know their master's heart at all. Now the charge against this servant who merely buried his talent was that he was wicked and lazy. We rarely see laziness as a real sin, something that must be repented of before the Lord. If laziness were a calling or a spiritual gift, this man would have been excellent at it or excelled at it, <laughs> but it isn't. We might say that this servant did not choose to have a proper fear of his master, but an unfitting fear of risk and a fear of failure. Many of us are paralyzed by that today. So we ought to have deposited the money with the bankers and at, and at my coming, I might have received back some interest in it. Jesus was saying this man could have done something with 
what he had, if he had not doubled it, it would have gained some interest for, for the master's money. Now, there are those who have things, like the servant with one talent, but they hold on to them in such a way that it is as if they have nothing. These ones will find what they had taken away. Now, those who hold what they have received as faithful men and women, to them, more will be given. So see, you see, God is looking to see how we steward what he gives us. Because he was wicked and lazy, the third servant, demonst the third servant demonstrated that he was not a true servant of his master at all. It is fitting that he and those who show the same heart can be cast out of the master's presence forever. Now, just as there is a sense of heaven and the destiny with the two faithful servants, there's a strong sense of hell in the destiny of the wicked and lazy servant. There's, a, there's an analogy going on here. Now, in the larger context of Matthew 25, the main point of this parable is clear. Our readiness for Jesus' return is determined by our stewardship of the resources that he has given us. Now, some think that readiness for Jesus' return is a very spiritual and abstract thing, but it really isn't. It is a matter of being about our business for the Lord. In light of this parable, we must ask ourselves, what have we done with our knowledge, with our time, with our money, with our abilities? The sins of omission, what we don't do, may ultimately be more dangerous than the sins of commission, what we do do. We can't plead ignorance before Jesus. Now look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Well, what's happening here? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, you see, this is not really a parable. It is a description of a future scene of judgment after the second coming of Jesus that is described in Matthew chapter 24 at the end of it. Now, he will sit on the throne in his glory. Jesus was here either guilty of megalomania, a delusion about his own power or importance, or he is indeed the Lord of glory. That's, this is what I'm teaching. He will judge the nations from his thrones. Now, his throne is present on earth because it happens when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Yes, Jesus is the judge of you and I. Now, in three days he would be crucified, yet he spoke of himself coming in glory. You see, he had around him a handful of disciples. One would betray him, one would deny him, and the others would forsake him. Yet he spoke of all of the holy angels with him. You see, Jesus lived in utter simplicity, almost poverty, and he was rejected by almost all of the great and mighty men of the world. We tend to forget this. Yet he said he would sit on the throne of glory because he knew that one day this would be the case. Now all the nations would be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. This particular judgment seems distinct from the great white throne judgment that's described in Revelation 20. This judgment of the nations is distinct from the final judgment for several reasons. Well, one, it happens at a different time. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 clearly happens after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ and his saints. The judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 happens immediately after the return of Jesus. So two judgments happening here. It happens at a different place. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 happens in heaven. The judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 happens on earth. 
important to understand that. It happened with different subjects. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 includes all unredeemed men and women. The judgment of the nations of 25 only seems to include the nations. That is, Gentiles who were judged in large me measure on their kindness and care towards the Jewish people. Now, it may be the Jewish people who survived the Great Tribulation will not be in this judgment of nations. This is something that is referred to as pan-tribulation, sort of in the end it will all pan out. We'll have to see how it lands. But the Son of Man, Jesus himself, has the authority to divide humanity in this judgment. There are not three categories, but only two. He says, look, you're a sheep or a goat. You're on my right or you're on my left. Now, this is true of the final judgment when humanity will be divided into two groups, not two groups, but only one. Yet, in, the, yet in, in my opinion, Jesus spoke here not of the final judgment, but of the separation that will happen after his return. The final judgment to deal with those who have survived the Great Tribulation. We'll learn more about this when we get into Revelation someday. But by the end of the Great Tribulation mentioned in Matthew and other passages, the population of the world will be greatly reduced by several factors. One will be the rapture of the church, those disciples, those followers of Jesus. First Thessalonians 4 talks about this. That will be a population decrease on the earth. The persecution and martyrdom of those who believe on Jesus after the rapture during the great tribulation. So there's another kind of timeline there. And then the terrible death and destruction that happens in the great tribulation. Read Revelation, lots of plagues coming at some point. <laughs> the catastrophe of the battle of Armageddon and Jesus' glorious return to the earth will take a lot of lives. Now look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me, and I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in naked and give you clothing? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, look, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. Let's look at this. So he says that, Come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Now the reward for those on his right hand, the sheep, is that they enter into his father's kingdom. They were approved on the basis of what they did. There's no mention of their faith or even forgiveness here. This judgment was based purely on their moral kindness. Now this is another clear distinction between this judgment of the nations and the final judgment. Now, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 is based on what is written in the book of Luke. The judgment of nations in Matthew 25 is based on the humane treatment of others, especially the followers of Jesus and those who claim to speak on his behalf. So I want to understand this. Now, look at verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you, you're cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. 
naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister? Then he will answer to them saying, assuredly, inasmuch as you did this to the least of these, you did not do it for me. Now, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So let, let's unpack this a little bit. The charge against the lost ones did not concern any obvious moral violation, but their indifferent attitude towards Jesus. Their indifference towards Jesus sealed their doom. Now throughout this chapter, the point has been emphasized, the price of indifference is too high to pay when it comes to Jesus. We can't afford to be indifferent towards Jesus in his return. We need to be ready for it. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the Holy Spirit who makes us ready for the return of Jesus. And we can't afford to be indifferent towards the resources that God gives us, the stewardship that he expects. Now, we can't afford to be indifferent towards the needy people that are all around us, including the billion people in the world that can't get water. We're trying to help them get it from the ocean. We can't afford to be indifferent towards lost humanity who will come to the judgment of God. Now, the guilt of the curse arises not so much from doing wrong things as in as much as the failure to attempt to do wrong things. Now, Jesus points out that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, men only go there because they have willingly cast their lot with the devil and his angels. Now, Charles Spurgeon pointed this out when he said they had joined the devil in refusing their allegiance to the Lord, so it was but right that imitating his rebellion, they should share in his punishment. Wow, heavy. Now, the literal meaning of this ancient Greek word is age long. Now, F.A. Bruce says the strict meaning age long was everlasting. Think about that. An everlasting time frame. All of eternity hinges on the decisions that we make in this life. Now, there are good reasons for thinking about this, taking a moment to think about our lives, to think about how we want to reflect and contemplate our relationship with the Lord and to meditate on that, to really soak it in and to really ask God, are we truly following Jesus like the hearers of this orig original passage would have had to con contemplate? Now, it says everlasting punishment, eternal fire. This mention of eternal life makes most believe that Jesus spoke about the final judgment. But for those who survived the great tribulation, certainly entrance into the millennial kingdom is the gateway to eternal life. Those who do not enter the millennial kingdom will also certainly have everlasting punishment. Now, the purpose of this judgment of the nations is to separate people before the beginning of Jesus' millennial kingdom. The wicked and cruel will not enter the moral and good they will enter. We covered a lot of ground today in Matthew 25, and this does include our time today. And I always like to end by us thinking about what is one thing that God spoke to me through today's beach talk. I'd like us to pray about it. Prayer is just a chance to to start some things in your life, to stop some things in your life, to ask God to maybe reset some things in your life. Would you pray with me right now? Would you say, God, help me to change my life? 
help me to stop and start and hit reset in those areas that I know that I need to. Would you come now by your spirit and give me the strength to do that? I want to follow you sincerely in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. The last thing I want to do today is the Bible talks about worship, talks about giving. This is something that's been practiced as the disciples and the followers of Jesus for thousands of years. And I want you to think about your life, and I want you to, to consider giving as part of your worship. We're to be good stewards with all that God does. I always pray every month, hey, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to give? And, and then I just do what he asked me to. And so if God's put that on your heart today, you can go to our website, and you can go to oceanwater.com. There's a giving link there, and you can make that a part of your worship, part of your expression for how you want to uh, follow Jesus in this part of your life. As always, thank you so much for watching today's Beach Talk, and I hope that you have a beautiful day.